You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. Since you're hearing this, that means I survived hosting my first baby shower. It was a great time. They loved their presents. I tried to stay out until 2 a.m. like I was 25, not with a pregnant person. Um, Never doing that again, but I got to experience one of my friend's late night activities, and I've always been curious. And now I can uh, retire from that life and be cool with that. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Killers of the Flower Moon. Was this movie incredible? Yes, that was never going to be in question. I read the book a few months ago and I couldn't wait to see what Martin Scorsese did with the story. Did it need to be three and a half hours long? Debatable. (laughs) It's a very, if you saw Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon is about 30 minutes longer and it is a very different experience of three hours like Oppenheimer those three hours went by pretty pretty damn quick Killers of the Flower Moon you feel every single minute of that three and a half hours and it's not like there's a lot of like nonsensical filler there's some but not a lot so it's kind of like well you could cut it down but then like it wouldn't be the same movie but god it felt so excruciating long so that's honestly the only negative thing i could say about it is that you feel those three and a half hours in a way you don't with other three hour movies but that being said i'd rather watch this again than the irishman i saw the irishman once and i'm like this is probably enough but i'll probably almost definitely see killers of the flower moon again and at least that going forward i can pause it because my bladder cannot sit for three and a half hours with the amount of liquid i consume (laughs) um if you don't know The film is based on a book about the Osage murders that happened in the 1920s and 30s or so. And it's a super messed up story. It's one of those things that they should really teach you in American history class. They don't teach you in American history class. But yeah, it's masterfully told. I mean, Scorsese, it's it's just long. Strike updates. Talks resumed on Thursday. So like four days ago, nothing's happened. Apparently they're talking through the weekend. Unlike with the Writers Guild one, Like when the lawyers were summoned, I'd be like, oh, it's happening. But like nothing's happening. They're keeping it completely locked down. So, yeah, we're all just sitting um, around waiting for word that, you know, progress has been made or progress hasn't been made. November 1st seems to be the magic date of like if it's not settled by November 1st, production's done for the year, which, yeah, the pretty solid number. You might be able to get like some indie stuff. On its feet, but nothing significant because in America, for the 20% of you or so that aren't American, the third week of November, we've got Thanksgiving. So that week is pretty much a wash more often than not. And it's an unofficially official practice in Hollywood that the last two weeks of December are uh, dark. It's There's eight weeks, nine weeks left in the year, whatever it is. 
But really, there's only like three or four viable shooting weeks left. Maybe some of the films that were wrapping up or only had a few days left. Maybe those go back into production. But as far as anything new, that that's probably not going to happen. And now on to this week's topic. This week, the major studio and final years of Alfred Hitchcock. By the way, if you just found this episode searching or whatever, you definitely want to at the very least listen to last week's episode as these two are very much continuations of each other. I'm not telling you what to do, but there are certain things that come up in here that I don't explain again that are explained in the previous episode, which was like his early Hollywood years. So just keep that in mind if you just found this blind, but you know, live your life, do whatever you want to do. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. But I'm Alfred Hitchcock. I am. I can prove it. Sure, sure. Everybody is. I am. I insist. An astounding hoax. He carried off the impersonation brilliantly, except for one thing. Bubble gum in his pocket, indeed. Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't be caught dead with a bubble gum in his pocket. So we wrapped up last week with the 55-year-old Alfred Hitchcock having a relative hot streak with his Grace Kelly starring films. The name Alfred Hitchcock by this point carried a seal of quality for anything suspenseful or thrillery or what have you, anything kind of in that vein. And some people tried to convince him, some successfully, to add his name to things to capitalize on something other than films. Hitchcock signed over his name to a Florida businessman in order to publish a Hitchcock magazine. The director didn't really have anything to do with the publication, just lending his name in exchange for some money. He also got Patricia, his daughter, an honorary position on the magazine for a while, which secured her a small stipend. But that would be small potatoes to the next deal he made, which was with Lou Wasserman, the president of MCA at the time. MCA had started as a talent agency for musicians, but had since expanded to representing other talent, including Hitchcock by this point. And they had also started in about 1950 entering television production. MCA, the television side of MCA, I should say, met with Hitchcock several times, and eventually this led to Alfred Hitchcock Presents, a series of melodramas and thrillers and the like, hosted and introduced by Hitchcock. But the episodes themselves were sometimes directed by others, actually more often than not directed by others. Hitchcock himself directed, I believe, 17 of the 268 episodes. The show was kind of like The Twilight Zone, but for more suspense and thrillers, there was some uh, light supernatural stuff, if I'm remembering correctly. It's been a minute since I've watched them all. Hitchcock would be in the wings for the majority of it, but he would be paid $129,000, keep in mind that's 50s money, so that's a shitload of money, per show, plus some a few other perks. He would then open his television production company, which he named Shamely Productions, after his former English estate. Audiences fell in love with his flat delivery and blasé attitude that was typically in contradiction to whatever he was saying. Now, not only was the name Alfred Hitchcock a household name, so was his face. And if you want an idea of like how deadpan these were, I played you one of the openers at the break, if you couldn't tell. His voice is deeper than I thought it would be, even though I've heard it a million times. It's always deeper than I think it's going to be. Anyway, in 1955, Hitchcock also decided to officially become an American citizen. Alma Revel, his wife, had done so a decade earlier. After his swearing-in, he was whisked off to Paramount, where he was greeted with champagne and cake to celebrate their new countrymen. 
For his next film, Hitchcock wanted to give an American update to his 1934 film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Production would take place in North Africa and London and starred Doris Day and Jimmy Stewart. Upon returning to the States at the completion of Shooting to Catch a Thief released, and while audiences loved it, critics were divided. Tale as old as time for Hitchcock. One review was so scathing, it actually sent Hitchcock to bed for three days. The Trouble with Harry, the film he'd shot, I believe, afterward to Catch a Thief or in between Rewindo and To Catch a Thief. They're all kind of like crammed together there. Did not fare much better with critics. Hitchcock began secretly consuming mass amounts of ice cream, a former bad habit that would cause a major health crisis within a year. After that, Hitchcock returned to Warner Brothers as they owned the rights to the source material for what he wanted to be his next project. It was the true story of a New York City musician who was incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit. So that wrongfully accused man, very in Hitchcock's wheelhouse. The story was covered in a Life magazine article and the story rights had, of course, been acquired by Warner. Hitchcock wanted him. They set the film up. It was called The Wrong Man. It released in 1956, and it was Hitchcock's last Warner film and also completed his contract with them that he'd signed when Transatlantic Pictures was still a thing. Dissolving your company apparently does not get you out of a contract. The film starred Henry Ford and Vera Miles, the latter of whom was almost worked to death by her director. For whatever reason, probably something creepy, let's be honest, Hitchcock had Miles' male counterparts working just two hours a day, while she was being trained by Hitchcock for up to nine hours a day. The call sheets refer to these stretches as quote-unquote story conferences. Hitchcock would also send her roses each day, which she destroyed each day. It took Miles getting married for the quote-unquote conferences to mellow out, though they did not go away completely. Some believe that Miles' treatment at the hands of Hitchcock was a way to try and make her his next Grace Kelly, which I believe I mentioned last week was Hitchcock's favorite actress to work with. By this point, Kelly had gone off and married some prince, and his previous obsession, Ingrid Bergman, had fallen in love with a different director and had been more or less unofficially banned from Hollywood for the time being. Because of all this, Hitchcock reportedly felt abandoned by his two former muses and seemed to be desperate for a new one. And they were always very young, very innocent, and of course, blonde. After shooting on The Wrong Man was complete, Hitchcock was ready for his next film. His first attempt was to make a film called Flamingo Feather, but was disappointed by his scouting trip to Africa and the fact that the newly married Princess Grace seemed to be serious about her retirement from acting. She was the only one he wanted for a part in that film, so it just went away. A few duds followed in script form, and then a swift kick in the crotch came for Hitchcock when The Wrong Man was ill-received by critics. If that wasn't enough, by the beginning of 1957, he began feeling weak all the time and complaining of digestive issues and abdominal pain. While working on one of his episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, One More Mile to Go, Hitchcock began feeling ill and was subsequently bedridden. He was eventually convinced to go to the hospital, which is another phobia of his, where he was told that, hey, maybe you should get that hernia you've ignored for 14 years or whatever fixed. So he did. The director believed he was all good now and convalesced at the family home in Santa Cruz, which is a coastal town in Central California. About two months later, however, Hitchcock was rushed to the hospital with what Alma believed was a heart attack. 
Tests showed that the director's gallbladder was diseased and he had gallstones blocking his bladder tract or whatever it's called. More surgery would be required. After all of that, Hitchcock was forced to recover for an additional month. While trying to get his next film going, From Amongst the Dead, Hitchcock was angry to find out that Vera Miles, who he'd spent all that time conferencing, was pregnant. The director was furious, stating that he could have made her internationally famous, and she had the audacity to get knocked up by some dude who played Tarzan. Hitchcock was, according to some, pissed about this for years, with some saying up to the end of his life, though they did work together again. You probably know her best as Lila Crane. She's the sister of the shower lady from Psycho. That's that's Vera Miles. From Amongst the Dead, the film Miles turned down because pregnant, you probably know better as what it was eventually called, Vertigo. Jimmy Stewart was eager to sign on to the film after reading the script, and production took place mostly in the California Bay Area. Hitchcock's new unwedding actress, Kim Novak, was cast as the Hitchcock blonde and was a new signee of MCA. Hitchcock would later tell gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, quote, she was scared stiff and put on a defensive front the first time we met. I had to relax her, give her confidence. It was very hard for me to get what I wanted from her, since Kim's head was full of her own ideas. He later said that the most positive experience with working with her is that he got to throw her into the water. He may have felt that way, but Kim Novak's performance in Vertigo was one of her best to date. Vertigo is the quintessential film when it comes to exploring color usage on screen. It was actually my gateway into color theory on film. Throughout it, Hitchcock uses red and green motifs, for example, to represent his two leads. Stewart is red, Novak is green. Those two colors are the opposite side of the color wheel. And as the two characters come together and grow closer, so to do their colors. And of course, as the relationship ebbs and flows, so does how the color is used in a scene. It's very cool. And once you notice it, you will notice it in every film you see. Like, you'll notice that, like, it's, it's honestly it goes back to, like, you know, the cowboy, the good guy being in white, the bad guy being in black. It's, it's very similar to that, just using different colors. There's other colors you can do that with other than black and white. In many of his color films going forward, Hitchcock would play with color in many similar ways. He was a huge revolutionary force in color theory and film. Hitchcock then had a one-film contract with MGM and chose a project that he low-key been working on for about nine years. Screenwriter Ernest Lehman was brought on board to help out with the adaptation of The Wreck of the Merry Deer. When that project didn't work out, the two began working on a different project, which would be called North by Northwest. Shooting for that film took place all over the United States, and Hitchcock found himself getting recognized everywhere he went. This was, of course, because of the TV show, which was insanely popular by this point. A pivotal scene for North by Northwest takes place on Mount Rushmore, and there were some brief issues as the U.S. Department of the Interior pulled their permits to actually shoot there. Eventually, they were allowed to shoot on model scales of the mountain that had been built in Hollywood. But the filmmakers were only allowed to show the monument from the chin and shoulders of the presidents if people were crawling on it for whatever reason. I guess they didn't want them like crawling all over their faces. I think they do that in National Treasure, too. So they've clearly changed their tune about it. But, you know. When he was denied permission to film outside the United Nations building in New York, Hitchcock just told the film star Cary Grant to walk towards the entrance, and then Hitchcock used cameras hidden in a van nearby to shoot it. Super legal back then and today. But somehow he never got in trouble for that. 
Of course, the most famous scene from that film is the crop duster plane chase. The plane was a naval aircraft factory N3N Canary, better known as the Yellow Peril, which was a World War II Navy primary trainer, sometimes converted for crop dusting. In 2000, The Guardian ranked that scene at number 29 on their list of top 100 film moments. North by Northwest was an instantaneous hit when it released, heralded as an instant classic of the genre, which of course it remains to be to this day. By the middle of the summer of 1959, Hitchcock had already figured out his next film, Psycho, which was based on Robert Block's book of the same name, which itself was based loosely on the murder spree of Ed Gein. This, of course, would become Hitchcock's most famous film and give the director his final Best Director Oscar nomination. He lost to Billy Wilder again, this time for The Apartment. Psycho is probably best known for the shower scene, the reveal of Mother's fate in the film's climax, and the brutal on-screen violence against women, which would also be on display for several future Hitchcock films as well. The women from this point on, more often than not, were also more conniving. Donald Spotto, one of Hitchcock's biographers, attributes this to the long-repressed resentment Hitchcock felt towards his leading ladies that had caused him issues. He also believed that Hitchcock's creepy, predatory behavior that we'll talk about in a bit stemmed from the director being sexually repressed. The actress ultimately cast as the quote-unquote Hitchcock blonde was Janet Lee, and her face frozen mid-scream is one of the most iconic images not only of Hitchcock's career, but in all of cinema. The shower scene in which Mother, who kills Marion, the woman who stole tens of thousands of dollars from her boss, Lee's character, changed Hollywood forever. The blood shown going down the drain opened the door for further violence to be shown on film, and the sound and sight of the toilet flushing was the first time that had ever been shown on screen in a mainstream American film, and that allowed more realism in cinema to be portrayed. The editing was also revolutionary, the fast cuts with the music and how that implied, you know, the violence, like this true, true violence happening without you really seeing too much. Hitchcock knew that his audience's minds would conjure up something far worse than what he would be allowed to put on screen back in 1960. The violence that was shown alarmed Paramount, but they ultimately let Hitchcock keep it in. Psycho was actually panned by critics at first, but was unbelievably popular with audiences. The film got loads of nominations and opened up a new toy box for Hitchcock to play in. Psycho was also the last of his busy filmmaking lifestyle era. For the last 20 years up to this point, he was averaging about one film per year, but the dude was 60. Age was starting to catch up and he was starting to slow down whether he wanted to or not. After the success of Psycho and knowing from a financial perspective he didn't have to jump onto another film necessarily, Hitchcock went out on a series of vacations with Alma. This trip took them around the world, including France, where he ran into a now 28, 29-year-old Francois Truffaut, whom he'd met on vacation several years earlier. Truffaut had recently released his directorial debut, The 400 Blows, and was getting his own hype for it. For the majority of 1961, it was quiet at the Hitchcock house. They were no longer getting invited out a terrible amount because people had issues with the quote-unquote superiority complex Hitchcock exhibited regularly, especially around other people's cooking. He was a very picky eater. He also liked to nitpick weird little things over table etiquette, and people were super put off by that. So they're like, let's not bring the bummer guy who's going to be picky and weird the whole time. Like, that's not a vibe people tend to like to be around. So they were 
were kind of isolated in that way. But in the fall of 1961, Hitchcock began what would end up being a long, arduous process of developing the film The Birds. Hitchcock found his leading lady watching a Sago ad, which was a Slimfast-esque drink from the looks of it. My cursory Google. The woman in the ad's name was Tippi Hedren. The director had his people find her, and before she could say boo, the model, not an actress, had a contract with MCA. Hedren later claimed that she'd never had any aspirations to be an actress, yet Hitchcock had willed it into being. She didn't meet him until she was fully contracted with MCA and then was kind of just ushered before him where she was informed of his plans for her. Then, like Grace Kelly and Verna Miles before her, she was sent to costume designer Edith Head to be fitted for not only her costumes for the birds, but for an entire new wardrobe for herself, all paid for by Mr. Hitchcock. He also, quote unquote, trained her like he'd done for Miles. He told her to gain weight and send potatoes to her front door to encourage that process along. In early 1962, Hitchcock sold his rights to Psycho and the TV show, as well as the rest of his Paramount contract to MCA, who was in the process of acquiring several entities, including Universal Pictures. Instead of getting a big payday, Hitchcock got stock instead, effectively becoming his own boss with some asterisks. Hitchcock had started the birds at Paramount, but would finish it for Universal. The backlot became the base for his lavish office for the remainder of his career. The Birds was a highly complicated film to shoot, and that shooting occurred in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Bodega Bay, a coastal town not far from Santa Rosa where he'd shot Shadow of a Doubt. The film required nearly double the amount of shots an average film had back then, and three times more for the dude who loved a long take. This is because of the special effects involving the birds attacking people in the film. Then, of course, they had to train some birds to fly over actors' heads, though, and this did make me feel a little bit better, mechanical ones were used for scenes involving children. The adult actors were not so lucky. Everybody pretty much on the cast and crew got bitten or scratched by a bird at some point during the production, so everybody got tennis shots. And now, just to give a heads up, we're going to talk a little bit about some creepy, predatory behavior. So if you're uncomfortable with that, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. Nothing terribly horrific happens. It's just very, it's a, it's, a, it's a little, you know, if someone's been in a controlling relationship, it can be a little triggery. Just to give you a heads up, but I, it's not terribly bad. It's not great. Shooting on the Birds ran for 20 weeks, with Tippi Hedren only getting one day off in all those weeks. At some point during the production, Hitchcock hired men to follow her around and report back to him what she was doing and who she was seeing. He thought this was protecting her. The men that he hired did it for a few days. We didn't hire them. They were on the production. But they found a 30-something mother's life quite mundane, and they stopped after a couple days. Fellow castmates called Tippy's reaction to all of this as quote-unquote frightened as Hitchcock began allegedly telling Hedren what as Hitchcock began allegedly telling Hedren what to eat and what to wear and who to see on her few moments to herself. It was clear that he felt she owed him a debt of gratitude of some kind. Quote, he could be two different men, Hedren later said. He was a meticulous and sensitive director who gave so much to each scene and who got so much emotion into it. And he was a man who could do anything to get a reaction from me. 
If all that wasn't enough, the final scene was hellish, to say the least. The scene required Hedrin to be shown being attacked by mostly real birds, despite the fact that in the days and weeks leading up to the shooting, she'd been assured they were all going to be mechanical. But they looked too fake, so real birds. Hedrin was put in a cage with the birds, which were then released by two men off camera who were essentially just chucking them at her while she waved her arms and in real life became progressively more terrified. She had to do this dozens if not hundreds of times over the span of a week. Hedrin was eventually scratched deeply on her lower eye, you can see it in the final film, and it caused her to have something akin to a panic attack. Her doctor told the production she needed to rest for at least a week, and after some other drama that doesn't need going into, the rest of the production was completed without incident. Though everyone working on the picture remarked that Hitchcock was acting super off during shooting. Around this time, Hitchcock sent Hedren's five-year-old daughter, a creepy doll of her mother, dressed as her character in The Birds, which is a nice thing until you realize that the doll was sent in a tiny pine box akin to a coffin. Then, under the pretext of a makeup session, Hitchcock had a life mask made of Hedren, which he kept with him for years. Gifts and letters and all manner of other creepy shit followed. During the production of The Birds, Hitchcock decided to try and revive his long-dormant project, Marnie, as he believed Tippy could play that role, but was still holding out hope for Grace Kelly to return to Hollywood. Kelly was eager to do that film. She had loved working with Hitchcock, but people were publicly outraged when the idea of their princess playing a thief was presented as a possibility. So Hedrum was cast instead, and the weird behavior continued. Hitchcock described to his screenwriter shot by shot his ideas for the first part of the film, including a graphic sexual assault scene, which the screenwriter begged him to omit. Hitchcock fired him and hired a relative newbie, so basically someone who wouldn't dare question the world-famous director. Slowly but surely, according to biographer Spotto, the film began morphing into something that mirrored Hitchcock's perceived relationship with Hedren. Around this time, he even told her about fantasies he had of her. In the press, he called her his ultimate actress, the one he'd spent decades waiting to direct. When pre-production for Marnie began, Hitchcock had Hedren's dressing room set up with a ramp that connected his office to her trailer. During production, Hedren would invite friends and family to set, so there were always people with her towards the end of the shooting day. By the end of shooting, Hitchcock had tried to proposition her sexually outright in her trailer. She refused, despite him making low-key threats, and from that day forward, he'd refer to her only as that girl. On set, he'd speak to her through assistance, which I'm sure at this point she vastly preferred. Not excusing this behavior in any way, it's creepy as shit and super predatory and very not okay. But based on this and all the anecdotes you hear about him being quirky or weird or childlike or what have you, clearly there was some deep psychological issues at play with this dude that were never addressed because it was the 1960s and people didn't really like talk about their feelings openly without judgment until like maybe the last 10-15 years. So this guy was definitely not going to therapy and definitely needs some kind of psychoanalysis does not excuse what he did but like clearly right there's some there's something very there's something very very mentally wrong with this dude great director but very disturbed marnie was negatively received upon release as hitchcock pretty much just stopped giving a shit about it after hedron rebuffed him 
On August 13th, 1962, Hitchcock's 63rd birthday, Francois Truffaut began the process of collecting 50 hours in interviews with Hitchcock, during which he agreed to answer 500 questions. It took four years to transcribe the tapes and organize the photographs, and it was published in 1967. It's called Hitchcock Truffaut. Truffaut, who began his film career as a critic for the Cahiers du Cinema, sought the interview because it was clear to him that Hitchcock was not simply the mass market entertainer the American media blew him off as. It was obvious from his films, Truffaut wrote, that Hitchcock had, quote, given more thought to the potential of his art than any of his colleagues. The book is a quintessential read for anyone who loves film. It's phenomenal. Hitchcock took his dear sweet time choosing his next project. He was pretty much allowed to make whatever he wanted at Universal, own boss, so long as it cost under $3 million and he used major stars in the film. Writing on the film that would become Torn Curtain began in the summer of 1965 and shooting commenced in November while the script was still being finished. It was clear to pretty much everyone that this film was going to bomb. It was just a rehash of some Hitchcock tropes and nothing more. The screenwriter remarked that Hitchcock had no sense of character development. Julie Andrews, one of the film's leads, summed up the experience as such, quote, I accepted for the chance to work with Hitchcock, and he taught me more about film and lenses than anyone. It was a wonderful education, but he was obviously more interested in manipulating people and in getting a reaction from the audience than he was in directing us. The first day of production, he announced that for him, the fun was over. The creative part was finished with script and storyboard preparation, and now he said the rest was a bore. You can imagine how that made us feel. When the film released, critics were quick to point out this was just a Hitchcock Mad Libs movie, essentially. But luckily for the director, he was too busy giving speeches at schools and accepting Lifetime Achievement Awards to be much bothered by it. 1967 is really the only year of Hitchcock's professional life where next to nothing is known about what the director was up to. From what people can tell, he spent most of that year moping at home or traveling with Alma. He made one major announcement that year, though, on June 9th, that he was planning in about a year to make another picture. This would become Topaz. By all accounts, Hitchcock's most expensive film to date was a mess and an even bigger stinker than Marnie at the box office, despite Universal flying that 70-year-old man all over the world to promote the damn thing. Moviegoers didn't seem to like the fact that no big stars were in the film, which was a first in several years. By 1969, the year the film released, the studio system was more or less dead. Actors were no longer under contract to a studio in any meaningful way, which allowed them to more or less choose their roles and therefore their directors. You couldn't really force an actor to take a part anymore, at least externally. Like if they needed money, obviously they were going to take shit they didn't want. But if they didn't need the money, if they didn't want the time, which most of the wealthy ones had and could, they didn't have to work with anybody they didn't want to. So with Hitchcock's weird, shitty, predatory behavior well-known and his track record steadily diminishing, no big stars wanted to work with the director, it seems. People the world over began calling him, quote, the director who used to make films like Psycho or insert other film here. After some time off, meetings about the project that would become Frenzy began at Universal. Hitchcock was informed that he was getting nowhere near the budget of his last film because it had been a whole-ass disaster. After those two espionage films had tanked, Hitchcock returned to the murder genre. The film shot on location in London, where the majority of the cast were also from, as he'd pretty much alienated the U.S. talent. 
Hitchcock, now 73, was eating and drinking more than ever, and it was not unusual for the once meticulous director to sleep throughout the afternoon shooting. Also during production, Alma, who had already survived a bout with breast cancer by this point, suffered a stroke, leaving her partially paralyzed. As a result, some sequences were shot without Hitchcock on the set so he could take care of her. She eventually flew home with Hitchcock's secretary, but without her by his side, Hitchcock, terrified of the idea that Alma might die first, became detached and quote-unquote lazy when it came to making the film. Despite this, Frenzy was not only a box office hit, but a critical smash as well, in the U.S. anyway. U.K. critics were more critical of Hitchcock's views of London. It was also the first Hitchcock film, unless you're counting the Blink and You Miss It shot in Psycho, to feature out-and-out nudity. The next few years were filled with interviews, honorary awards, and retrospectives on his work. But before long, Hitchcock was back at Universal, making what would be his final picture, which would be called Family Plot. Based on the 1972 novel The Rainbird Pattern, Ernest Lehman, the film's writer, wanted the film to be a sweeping, dark, dramatic film, but Hitchcock kept pushing him toward lightness and comedy. Eventually, they landed on a compromise. In early 1975, Hitchcock began experiencing a litany of health issues and was ultimately fitted with a pacemaker. He got ill a few days later and bounced in and out of the hospital for one health issue or another. These health issues caused delays in the scripts getting finished, which caused delays in production starting. When shooting Family Plot, it was clear to everyone that the nearly 78-year-old director was sick. He ended the day at 4 p.m., sometimes in the middle of a take. He also delayed his signature cameo as far as possible into shooting due to his bloating thanks to cortisone shots and heavy drinking and eating on top of everything else. He hated making them by this point, but superstition compelled him to do it anyway. When Family Plot released on April 9th, 1976, the film was met with positive reviews and made a modest amount of money. Hitchcock, despite finding it harder and harder to move, never intended for Family Plot to be his final film, until it was. As late as 1978, he was submitting scripts and projects for Universal to consider. To the writers that made it to his home, they would find the director more often than not drunk and disoriented, a shell of the man he'd once been. Even the great Alfred Hitchcock was turning out to be a mere mortal. Unfortunately, the final years of Alfred Hitchcock are quite sad. Hitchcock found himself quite lonely in his home away from a film set. After years of ignoring letters, calls, and the like from admirers and friends, the director was now desperately seeking human contact, but a lifetime of being a loner left him with few people who cared enough to call on him. He was drunk pretty much all the time, leading to some outlandish behavior, including propositioning his secretary at Universal graphically. He would alternate between untethered rage, inconsolable weeping, then weird childish sweetness, then old people-esque incoherent obscenities. Universal, specifically Lou Wasserman, didn't know what the hell to do. Keeping Hitchcock on the lot was prohibitively expensive, and he was making them look real bad at this point. Wasserman didn't want to fire the man, that felt harsh, but like, the dude was clearly too messed up to shoot another film. You can't just hang around a back lot if you're not going to do anything, though that is fun to do. Before anyone had to make that hard decision, fate stepped in. Victor Saville, one of Hitchcock's first film bosses all the way back in the 1920s, passed away in April 1979. Hitchcock announced in the moment he found out that he was closing up the Universal shop. Now he and Alma, who could only walk with the help of a walker and nurses, were homebound, their only regular visitor, their daughter, and her family. 
Just after Hitchcock's 80th birthday in August 1979, Ingrid Bergman paid a visit. He took both my hands, she recalled of the visit, and tears streamed down his face and he said, quote, Ingrid, I'm going to die. And I said, but of course you are going to die sometime, Hitch. We are all going to die. And then I told him that I too had recently been very ill and that I had thought about it too. And for a moment, the logic of that seemed to make him more peaceful. On July 3rd, 1980, Hitchcock was honored with a knighthood, but being too ill to make the journey to the UK, was awarded it at Universal Pictures. Alfred Hitchcock's last public appearance was on March 16, 1980, during which time he presented that year's American Film Institute recipient, Jimmy Stewart, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Hitchcock had won the year before, and it was tradition for the year's previous winner to bestow it on the next recipient. On July 29, 1980, at 9.17 in the morning, Hitchcock breathed his last, dying of liver failure. His funeral was held at Good Shepherd Catholic Church in Beverly Hills the following day, and his body was cremated soon after. His remains were scattered over the Pacific Ocean on May 10, 1980. Alma Revel followed her husband in death on July 6, 1982. Her ashes joined her husband's in the Pacific. Even though he's been gone for over 40 years, the influence of Alfred Hitchcock's films and body of work continue to be seen regularly in media, and his face is still known even by those with only a casual interest in film. A man who is seen as a creator of commercial blah films more often than not in his day is today seen rightfully as one of the greatest directors that ever lived and is known as the master of suspense. Hitchcock films were always more than just a film. For nearly 60 years, he found a way to put his deepest fears on celluloid, turning those solitary internal fears into a shared outward experience for millions of filmgoers. Over more than 50 films, Hitchcock developed a style that was all his own, often mimicked but never fully copied. He changed the way filmmakers look at and make films, whether it be the color, the editing, the shots, what have you. There has never been anyone quite like that before or after. A complicated man by every stretch of the word, Alfred Hitchcock left us a body of work that is unmatched by nearly every director whom has ever lived. A storyteller into his marrow. Storytellers like that never truly die. I hate what she's become. I hate the illness. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace? You mean an institution? A madhouse? People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring. <laughs> what do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? laughing and the tears and the cruel eyes studying you my mother there but she's harmless she's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds I am sorry I, I only felt it seems she's hurting you I meant well people always mean well they cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course, I've suggested it myself, but I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. 
She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook, The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you just buy me a coffee. I'm drinking some fridge cold brew. It's lovely. I got to stay home. It's great. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're looking into the lives of three major child actors and the changes their careers caused in the film industry. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Uh-huh.